Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Garth Greenwell, uh, a man who wears many hats, or as I like to say, has a, uh, is a man of letters in full. Um, he is a novelist, a critic, uh, a poet, and he is our guest here at the Suwannee Review podcast in the Ralston Listening Room um, as the speaker on this year's 2019 Aiken Taylor Award winner in modern American poetry, Carl Phillips. But he is, of course, uh, many more things than that. So uh, with that, Garth, welcome to Suwannee and to the Suwannee Review podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am... Um, I wanted to begin by asking you a question uh, going from your sort of most recent work um, and then backwards is kind of how we'll proceed. Uh, I was really struck by something you said during your Bennington commencement speech where you, you alluded to really the saving power of art and what it meant for you as a 14-year-old gay kid living in Kentucky, to pull down Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And I guess what I wanted to ask was, was that the birth of Garth Greenwell, the artist, as the individual, or as both? If you could just talk about that that moment for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think both, although I also think the path to each of those things would be very long. I mean, you know, I, growing up in Kentucky, um, first generation removed from the farm, my family were tobacco farmers. Um, as a gay person pre-internet, um, th there was only one image of myself available in the culture. Um, the only thing I knew about gay men was that gay men molested children and they died of AIDS. <laughs> and so to have all of the sudden my sense of the scale of the world in the sense of the meaning of myself, it might change, it might contain being so radically altered by opening Giovanni's room. And look, it's not that Giovanni's room has a wonderful positive message for what gay life is or can be, but it treats gay lives, gay desire with reverence. And it offered an image of myself that even if it was a tragic image, had dignity. That was a revelation. And, you know, to me, um, the promise not just of literature, but also of art. I mean, the, the thing that really saved me was that a choir teacher in a public high school in Kentucky heard something in my voice and started giving me voice lessons and introduced me to opera and um, brought me an application for a school. And that was the way, and I got a scholarship because I could sing and that's the way I got out of Kentucky and into a bigger world. And so art, and it was exactly at that time that I was starting to discover serious books and serious music and just this world that was so much bigger than I had thought it could be at, you know, growing up in Kentucky. And in that sense, I mean, to me, art has always had 
a place in my life um, that I think for some people religion has. That, you know, it is just this space of radical potential and capaciousness in, sen in the sense of what my life might mean. Um, so when I say things like, you know, opera saved my life or Giovanni's room saved my life, I mean, on one hand, that's, you know, a melodramatic way to put it, um, but it's also the scale of what I felt. That's, that's really interesting. I always, I'm always curious when I meet writers I admire to talk about their own personal canon. You know, uh, I think we, we sort of make a mistake to, to codify canon or to give it a capital C when really the progress of art, the evolution of art on an individual basis is one of individual canons, right? And so you're talking about this, this kind of hybrid sense of the way in which art and its capaciousness gave you an idea of life beyond where you felt stuck. Um, I mean, I know for me that um, comic books early on were just uh -huh. as important sure. um, as they were, as was science fiction, as was early recognizable kinds of literature. So I guess what I'd, I'd love to hear is, along with Giovanni's Room, you said you were just starting to read great books, but what were the books in those early stages that, and what were those operas right. that began to uh, give you an idea of, not one who's really conscious, but an idea of storytelling and an idea of how you told stories? Right. You know, it's interesting because as a kid, um, I had a, a comic book phase. I was never as obsessive as I saw some other people being, but for about two years, I really loved comic books. You might have asked, what were you reading? I was. I loved comic books. I loved Marvel comic books. I was reading X-Men, X-Factor. Yes. I was reading those things. I loved those comic books. Those were good years. They were really good years. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and as a kid, I also loved fantasy novels. Um, and it's funny because I actually think, you know, the way that I think about plot now, it's hard for me to trace back there. I actually think my sort of sense of literary structure comes from music because I do think when I was reading those books, I was not awake as an artist. You know, I was not, I mean, I came to literature really late. You know, I didn't grow up in a cultural household. Um, I didn't grow up in a house. I mean, we, you know, there were books, but there was not a sense that art was something special. Um, and so it was really in music. Now, in two things that were very lucky, Louisville, Kentucky at the time had a great independent bookstore called Holly Cook. And they had back in a shadowy corner, a lesbian and gay literature section. And it was really good. I didn't know that, but I knew as I was sort of coming to be aware of the fact that I was a gay person, I started to sort of guiltily hang out in that corner and I would snatch a book and take it, um, you know, to somewhere where I could sit and read. And um, I didn't know anything about literature. I didn't know what I should be looking for, but I pulled down Mishima and Virginia Woolf and Edmund White and James Baldwin. And the thing is, you know, I didn't know anything, and Thomas Mann, you know, I didn't know anything about what those books were as literature. But I knew, you know, and this is kind of a great gift that I think queerness gave me as an artist. There was a point of contact. I knew that there would be a point of contact. There was a way that I could pull down Mishima 
And, you know, for, and this is, I think, one of the really revolutionary things about queerness, like for all of the difference between me, my life and Mishima's life, for all of the, you know, the different cultural context, that there is this point of contact that allowed me to read this book and feel like it was whispering to me the secret of myself. And so there was that. And then the other great good fortune, I mean, there was so much good fortune, um, it just happened that the semester I started studying with this teacher in Louisville, um, who was so brilliant and so generous, I wouldn't realize for decades how generous he was, um, and who you know introduced me to opera, the Kentucky Opera, which is a very good opera company, did a production of Benjamin Britten's Turn of the Screw. And I went without knowing anything about Benjamin Britten or Henry James, Return of the Screw. It was a gorgeous production. I was overwhelmed by it. I was overwhelmed by the music. And that led to an obsession with Benjamin Britten, who I found out was gay, all of whose music was a kind of openly secret love letter to his partner and muse, the tenor Peter Pierce, and who was one of the greatest readers of literature of the 20th century and who almost uniquely among opera composers, the only other composer this is true of is Verdi who set Shakespeare. He set great independent texts. His setting of Turn of the Screw was my, was my introduction to Henry James. His setting of Death in Venice was my introduction to Thomas Mann. His setting of John Donne's Holy Sonnets was my introduction to Holy Sonnets. So I got this kind of incredible literary education because I was a singer and I wasn't thinking about writing. But um, I was really becoming a writer in those years. That's an incredible answer. It speaks to, speaks to one of the seven rules or seven pieces of advice. Yeah. <laughs> you discussed at Bennington. Um, I'm going to read those because they're so terrific. And uh, people should either carry them around on note cards or get a tattoo. I don't know. <laughs> They're, they're, Don't they're, do that. Don't they're meme-worthy. <laughs> but let me read those, and then, and, and, and because they speak to what you were saying. This is the seven words of advice to becoming a writer, right. to young writers. Hold your friends close. Comparison is the devil. Envy doesn't matter. The content changes, but the anxiety remains the same. Not writing is the only failure that matters. Read everything, and then remember the real life of literature. Uh, to throw in another great quote, Aristotle says the beginning is more than half the whole. And I mean, I think that in some ways it seems to me then that your sixth piece of advice, read everything, dovetails with what you were just saying, where it seems like your earliest education was one in cross-pollination of texts. Um, talk a little about Talk a little about reading everything, and um, because I thought I thought when you discussed that at Bennington, you, you did a wonderful summary about how certain cultural and aesthetic movements are so indebted to that kind of cross pollination. Yeah, I think that's really true. You know, and and the history of English literature. I mean, as I say in that talk, this is a simplification, but it's not really a grotesque simplification. That the history of English literature, because I mean, look, England was literally an insular place. You know, the 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 Renaissance arrived in England a century after it arrived 
everywhere else in Europe. Um, the English Channel as a cultural phenomenon was just huge. All of the big cultural, all of the huge innovation in English language literature has happened because of the collision of languages and cultures. So Wyatt reading Petrarch, um, Chaucer before him reading Boccaccio, Wyatt reading Petrarch, um, you know, Coleridge reading the German philosophers, um, Eliot and Pound reading French poetry. Um, it's always been a great writer cracking open the insularity of English as a language, as a literature, and letting something else in. I worry a lot. I mean, if, if somebody made me king of MFA programs, <laughs> you know, my I would want every MFA program to have a really stringent language requirement. You know, I think it's kind of devastating to literature that, you know, I mean, English language speakers now have the privilege of speaking a global language that is global in an utterly unprecedented way. Um, there is, you, know, you can travel anywhere in the world with English. Um, you can expect that anyone who's traveling anywhere in the world will have English as the lingua franca. I think that's devastating for literature. You know, I think um, it is important. Now, I, I think it, it is a very good second best to read deeply in translated literature. Mm -hmm. And that's a privilege we have in English. Well, it's a privilege we have in English that everybody wants to be translated into English. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I lived in Bulgaria, it was a little hard. You know, you couldn't expect that sort of the big books were going to be available in Bulgarian. So we do have that, but it is a second best. And I think to me as a writer, um, speaking other languages, reading in other languages, having a sense of the feel and the rhythms of other languages, um, that has been absolutely crucial. You know, and when, when I read from what belongs to you, I realize that the rhythms of the sentences are in places, I mean, it's clear to me, right, that sentence has that shape because I was speaking Bulgarian every day. And, you know, I like, it, I, anyway, I think that's a powerful thing. I think it's powerful to be able to engage with the literary tradition in a way that you only can if you speak the language and can read the language. Um, so that would be, it, it scares me a little that almost all of the English language writers I know only read in English. And I, I'll say that most of the MFA students I, I work with don't read widely even in translation. And anytime, it doesn't matter that English is this global language. I mean, English is capacious, it's huge, and English language literature is incredibly exciting. Anytime you're reading in a single language, I think you are drawing from a well that is necessarily much shallower than literature. You know, so, um, but I, you know, I, I do think, you know, I'm a big believer in promiscuity in many forms. And I think promiscuity as a reader is crucial because I do think, you know, the only real preparation you can have as a writer, I think I'm, I'm very skeptical of the idea of craft. I say that as someone with two MFAs and someone who teaches workshops, I think the real preparation one can do as a writer is to try to prepare the soil. I mean, to try to fertilize the soil and make the best possible environment for 
talent to grow as richly as it possibly can. And, you know, in when I look at reading lists for many MFA program, many, you know, creative writing classes, I see a group of short stories that are all written in the same language, that all come from the same country, that often all come from the same decade. I think that's devastating for literature. One of the things you have the power to do as the editor of Swanee Review is dub people king of MFA programs. So I, I dub you king of MFA programs and I ask, since in fact there is almost a, a kind of tyranny of English speaking. I mean, I agree with you. When I was in Berlin, I dutifully started taking German. Yeah. And then you'd be walking around Berlin and you'd come up to someone and you'd, in halting German, start to ask directions and the person would say, my English isn't very good. But if you're trying to get to Brandenburg tour, you got to make a left there, make a right, then get on the S-Bahn, go, you know, and you'd be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. But I digress. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is, now that you're king of MFA programs and you had to at least send these poor kids who only speak one language off with, say, five translated works, mm-hmm. what would what, what would you put in there? Rucksacks. Oh, that's that's hard. That's hard to spring on. Well, it's me. Un, it's I mean, unfair, but it's unfair. I mean, because let's leave out the classic text. Let's leave yes. out Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Mann. We all know we should read those. I'm looking for stuff to read. Is what I'm saying. But there we go. Okay, out, so there. I will just say, uh, not enough people read Thomas Bernhardt. I mean, it's not that he's an, uh, a a writer that people don't know about, but I've, people don't read him enough. Um, I think he's great. Um, I think also this is a writer people know. People know about this writer, and he's hugely, he's probably the most influential recent writer, I think, in English language, on English language literature, and that's Zabalt, W.G. Zabalt. Um, Javier Marias, for me, is um, one of the great novelists currently working. Um, I've recently been obsessed with Kawabata, who's a writer who, I mean, again, a Nobel Prize winner, but a writer who I think a lot of people don't read. Um, for just being absolutely gorgeous. Jenny Erpenbeck, I think, is an extraordinary writer. Um, I do like Han Kung, the, the Vegetarian, I think is a wonderful book. And look, I mean, also, I recognize my own ignorance when it comes, you know, because my education is very intensely European and Latin American. Um, in Latin America, you know, it, it amazes me that American readers and and it especially amazes me that that queer American readers don't know about the Latin American queer Baroque, this extraordinary, you know, flourishing of queer literature in Latin America. And that would include, you know, writers going back as far as someone like this is a little complicated, but Jose Donoso is a great writer that um, people don't know. The extraordinary writer Lesama Lima. Pedro Lemebel, whose book, My Tender Matador, is one of my top 10 novels. Um, and I think he's one of the, he just died two years ago. And I think he's one of the great 20th century geniuses. Almost no one knows him. You know, but I also, I mean, and this is, I mean, the way I think one is a writer in the world. And I'll tell you who lives this way. The poet Ilya Kaminsky, who was one of my first writer friends. And certainly my first writer friend of my cohort who I met and I thought, oh, this is, this is actually a genius. His first question, anytime he meets someone, he says, who are your favorite poets? And I do think that's the way to be a writer in the world, to just ask everybody, 
what are you reading Absolutely. that really excites you? Mm-hmm. Um, not what's the hot book, not what's getting the prizes, but like what is the last book that made you feel like your head was exploding? Mm-hmm. So for me, I'll probably say that most recent experience was reading Jenny Arpenbeck's End of Days. Um, that was, and she has the great good fortune of being brilliantly translated into English. She's published by New Directions. Um, that book, I thought, oh, like here is an entirely different way to think about the novel as a form. And that's the thing about reading in other languages. And this, and you get this reading in translation. I mean, I don't read German, so I'm very lucky that Erpenbeck is beautifully translated. But, you know, when you read in other languages or when you read in translation, also when you read widely historically, like why aren't novelists reading Chaucer all the time? You understand that what we're often taught in workshops and this is changing i don't want i mean this is a caricature now but these teachers still exist and it's important i think to remember that you know every mfa program like if you think back a few decades every mfa program was seeded by iowa and there really was an iowa aesthetic in the 1950s that dominated american literature and that I think still in some corners is seen as the way one writes fiction. And that there is a kind of ideal of style that is kind of a shrunken whiteification of English. And there is an idea of how plots should work. And there is an ideal of what story structure should be. I mean, there's one person at Iowa who still kind of embodies this. Um, and when you read something like Jenny Erpenbeck, or if you go back and you read Chaucer or Boccaccio or Dante, you realize, oh, wait, that's this historically specific idea of what fiction should do. It actually, there's nothing inevitable about it. There's nothing natural about it. And that literature is so much bigger. There are so many more games being played in literature all the time than what's happening in The New Yorker, a magazine I love and revere, but then what happens in The New Yorker? Right. Well, there's no, there's no Murakami without Kafka. I, I can't even imagine what postmodern literature would look like without Calvino. Um, uh, at the same time, um, you talk about works that make your head explode. Uh, I was as taken with so many people with the Rachel Cusk trilogy because of the way in which she... Um, almost I thought kind of foregrounded by making her narrator a kind of negative space, how we swim in stories, right? How our whole sense of time, our whole sense of time is not chronological, right? But literally as we move through space, right? We are moving through other people's narratives and they are entirely immersive. Um, well, and that's, I mean, I think, you know, when I read those books, which I love and I think are brilliant, I mean, I see her, like, those books could not exist without Sebald. Right. You know, and... and well, a lot couldn't exist without Sebald right, right now. Ben I Lerner mean, couldn't exist without Sebald. Sure. I couldn't exist without Sebald. Right. Rachel Cuss couldn't exist without Sebald. I mean, they, that really is... I mean, look, those books, like, just landed in, in the English language, you know, like a bomb. I mean, it really did feel revolutionary. And in some sense, it still does for precisely the reasons you're mentioning. I mean, and you know, in Rachel Cusk, it's not that I'm, I'm saying those books are derivative in any negative way. I'm saying that, you know, Zabald, 
opened up this space that people still find so full of potential. Agreed. And, and yet at the same time, if, I don't know where, for instance, Philip Roth falls on that continuum, but um, sometimes it seems to me when we talk about things like autofiction, which has become a, a term that is at once all-encompassing uh, and narrow in its own ways, um, Roth was working that vein for quite some time, right? Um, well, and so this is really interesting. So, you know, autofiction is something I think about a lot because it's a word that I get asked about a lot because people want to read my books in those veins um, or in that vein. But, uh, but yeah, you know, to me, it's so weird that, you know, suddenly Knausgaard happens and people feel like there's this new thing they've discovered. When really, as you say, Philip Roth was doing this. Edmund White has been doing this for decades. You know, there is no, and of course, I mean, and anyone who reads French is like, oh, wait, this is nothing. You know, this is something like these books that blur fiction and nonfiction and the writer and the narrator. Like this is, a, again, it's a game that literature has been playing for a very long time. And even in English, literature has been playing for a very long time. But, but you, you, you know, you can, you can discuss craft a bit with regard to this because uh, when people... I, I don't so much bristle, but I kind of chuckle when people talk about the autobiographical element in fiction because the autobiographical element in fiction uh, is a bit of a dodge or, or, or it assumes that there's a trick to writing something believable on the page. The number, the number of changes one has to make, the defamiliarization that has to happen on the page in order to make something that is rooted in experience work on the page is um is enormous to the point where to the point where people who uh who will read something and say i recognize myself um you know that's uh it's a it's it's a mistaken emphasis um yeah i think that's right i think that's really true you know it's funny when people talk because you know that what belongs to you is full of invention um but there it is also clearly like the the fact checkable information you get about the narrator is also fact checkable information. Of course, that's true of me. And so people will say, "Well, how much of it is true?" And it just it not only what first it seems to me that's a question that's impossible to answer because even when you know, for instance, like I, I there is some deep blockage in me to inventing place. Every setting in what belongs to you is as accurate as I could possibly make it to a real setting. Um, you know, in fact, as I've, as I've been working on my second book, What Belongs to You, I wrote while I was in Bulgaria, so it was very easy to, to check these things. My second book, which I was writing in America, but is also set in Bulgaria, I would find myself blocked because I couldn't remember what a particular street corner would smell like at 10 p.m. at night. And, you know, I would say to myself, that's so ridiculous. Like, just make something up. Like there's a guy selling roasted nuts, like make it up. I couldn't do it. So, but even in that, where I'm trying to describe, you know, the bathrooms at the National Palace of Culture as accurately as I can. Well, after I wrote that scene, I would go to the bathrooms at the National Palace of Culture. And of course, it would not be what I had put on the page. What I put on the page had been changed in all sorts of ways by the pressure of form, by the pressure of the sentences themselves. Um, 
And so there's a way in which, I mean, the bathrooms beneath the National Palace of Culture are a real place. I was trying to describe them as accurately as I can. They are utterly fictional as they exist in the book. And that's the reason why the second thing I feel when people say, well, how much of the book is true? is I just feel I, I don't even recognize the question as having any possible traction on the project, as sort of being able to say anything meaningful about the project. Because as you say, everything is fiction, everything is made, everything is shaped, everything is, is altered. The novel is its own world. I mean, and that is why, to me, there was never a question of whether it was gonna be a novel or a, or a memoir, not just because I was inventing incidents and facts, but also because the novel is its own world. It doesn't intersect with the real world in the way, in the same way that, you know, if I were going to call a book a memoir, I could imagine it intersecting with the real world. You know, it's like, you know, Andrew Marvell has that wonderful image, uh, that wonderful poem where he talks about um, a dewdrop as standing for the soul. And he uses, you know, all of this sort of newfangled scientific notions they had to describe dewdrops and and surface pressure and why they hold together well that's a novel for me you know and it's not that it's totally impermeable you know it's not that it's hermetically sealed from the world but it's that it's its own little um center of gravity you know it is it's its own it it doesn't blend into the world in a way that would make it makes sense to say how much of this is true I love what you're saying about being handicapped <clears throat> regarding landscapes or, or, or regarding settings, because, I mean, of course, Shakespeare famously stole plots. It was almost as if Shakespeare had to steal plots in order to be liberated right. to exercise his powers, as it were. And and one of the things that struck me in rereading What Belongs to You is the way in which you seem to take Bulgaria and its various settings and and actually supercharge the landscape even though it's grounded in an actual landscape. So for instance, the very devastating second movement of what belongs to you which is called a grave, right? Yeah. Where I mean there's a motif throughout the, the novel of wanderings on the part of the narrator. Um, and how wandering in outer landscape is a wandering of a kind of inner landscape. Right. But of course as the narrator in What Belongs to You wanders, I forget the name of the neighborhood, but as he wanders through that slowly kind of degrading kind of neighborhood yeah. to this, I think, kind of like fundamental, like er rejection he experienced with his father, where in a novel that is in some ways so much about theatricality, and right. I really want to talk to you about the theme of theatricality in all your fiction, he perhaps saw his father's true face. Right. You supercharged that landscape. That that scene, in other words, had to take place there. So I guess what I was, a way of segueing into your fiction is, could you talk a little bit about your thinking at that time about that particular scene in What Belongs to You? And, and for, for readers who, for people who haven't read it, talk about it more as a series of aesthetic choices and how you right. think about that. So that middle section, and I love that you call it a movement. Um, my original title for, for the novel was actually Three Movements. Um, it was the one big change my agent sort of said. She said, you can't, we can't submit it with this title. I still really love that title, Three Movements. Um, but that is how I thought of the structure. 
that middle section is hard to talk about in terms of aesthetic choices because it felt more than anything I've written before or since. It felt unwilled. I felt like I was seized and taken over. Um, and that really that this voice, which is, I think, a quite distinct voice from the other two sections of it's the novel, the aesthetic choice that the question of will came in. I mean, I, I look, I was walking through Mlados, the name of this neighborhood, which I'll say, you know, sometimes when I'm working with students and students get anxious about like whether there is enough sort of symbolic resonance in their work, you know, my advice is always be as literal as you can, be as intense as you can with engaging with reality, and the symbols will take care of themselves. So, for instance, you know, the book begins when the narrator goes beneath, the, to, goes to bathrooms, uh, cruising bathrooms beneath the National Palace of Culture. He descends underneath the National Palace of Culture. That seems so allegorical. If I had even thought in those terms, I would have been paralyzed. It's actually just literally where these bathrooms are. That neighborhood he's walking through is called Mladost, which means youth. And so he's wandering, you know, again, it's totally allegorical. It's also just totally literal. That's where he is. Um, in terms of the willed feeling, I mean, it, it just happened that I was walking through Mladost one day on a hot day. I had finished recently the first section of the book called Mitku. I had no project of that becoming a bigger book. I had no intention to write about childhood, to write about Kentucky. And I was seized by this voice, this angry, it was really like just this sort of torrent of language seized me and I went into a cafe and I started writing on napkins and receipts. I started writing on trash and I had to write that whole section on trash. You know, if I tried to, usually I write in notebooks, I write by hand, usually I write in notebooks and I write in cheap notebooks, little like school kid notebooks. Um, but even that I couldn't do. I had to rip up sheets of paper. It was really like I could only write it if I was writing on material that could be mistaken as trash. And so I had no sense of the form of it until I had this pile of little numbered pieces of scraps of paper. Until I typed it up, that was when I realized I had written a 40-page paragraph. I didn't know that. Um, and that was also when... Um, I saw the way that the structure was working and that there were sort of three levels of past that we were moving between in this fugue-like way. So the willed part became, then when I had this, I questioned it all. And, but I ended up, you know, I don't, I rewrote that section by hand from beginning to end three times, which I didn't do for the other sections. So it, it was really intensely revised but that revision was all at the level of sentence. Like try, the sentences were so, like sentences would go on for pages and pages and pages and not in a, a, a meaningful, good way. Like I had to rein in the sentences, but the structure was there. Adding my own piece of advice to this, I, I, used, I used to tell students and even myself, never underestimate the power of a finished thing, right. which is to say that only by getting to the end you know, you can you can think of this iteratively as just on a draft to draft basis. Um, that's when you become that, that's when you more consciously play with or conjure with motifs, right? Um, however, 
um, there are recurring patterns in the book. I did on second reading want to ask you about what belongs to you. Is it a doppelganger story? In what sense? Well, I mean, in some ways, Mitko is almost is is a kind of doppelganger for um, the narrator, huh. and 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 it and it and it and it seems to be. I mean, Bulgaria is kind of like propinquitous to that tradition, right? It is because yeah. there is there is there is this there is this way there there are these there are these remarkable moments of watching children in 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 the in the novel and watching children in the novel is in some ways related to another theme of yours which is looking at art mm-hmm. and and uh and and you seem to be clearly separating the two but there's the young girl uh that the narrator sees who's just uh unabashedly and unselfconsciously loved by her father and then there's that remarkable young boy on the train who not only reminds the narrator of Mitko, but I think in some ways reminds him of the possible boy he might have been, if not for his own traumatic experiences. So that he and he and Mitko, they 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 get near to each other's fates in ways that are ultimately salutary and, and saving, I think, for the narrator, right? So interesting. So it's funny, you know, I've, I've been talking about this book now for three years and, uh, and, you know, I usually feel like no one, uh, you know, that sort of, I've heard everything that can be said about it. I, you're the first person to put it in those terms. I think that's really true. Um, that, that scene on the train is where I think it becomes really clear because it's clear that there is, you know, so the, the, the narrator is traveling on the train from the Black Sea coast back to Sofia. He's with his mother he watches this little boy who is with his grandmother and explicitly compares the way that they are sort of affectionate with one another, the way that they are demonstrative with, with one another, with the way that he is not with his mother. Correct. So that's explicit. And then that little boy is compared to Mikko. Look, I, I do think one of the, um, you know, in some sense, I, I think Mikko is the opposite of the narrator. Um, you know, in the what we first learn about him, I mean, the thing... We're told that Mikko is um, well. We're told that he's beautiful, but you know, clearly not kind of conventionally beautiful. The thing that I think really catches the narrator about him is something he says um, that is actually a quote. It's my favorite line in the book, and I really wish I had written it. But it's a quotation from Pessoa, as translated by Richard Zenith, and it's where he says that Mikko had no, seemed to have no squeamishness about existence, and that marks their difference because i think the thing that characterizes the narrator is squeamishness about existence let's talk about that because okay. that that's where that's where you're right on something that is shot through the frog king and an evening out and what belongs to you which is for the narrator this at times crippling sense of theatricality right and you know we began this we began this discussion talking about opera which is in some ways to me the largest form of emotion um, and why it so powerfully grabs certain people at a young age. But the, the narrator, for the narrator, for instance, in The Frog King, theatricality, the act of, of kissing every part 
of his lover's body and saying the words, I love you over and over, the, the acting out of it is what makes it real. At the same time, there's a deep level suspicion in an evening out of, of playing your true self, of revealing your true self, of the idea of teaching as a form of caricature, a poem of yourself, I think you called it, which was, which was a lovely phrase. Um, talk, uh, maybe the way to sort of conclude this part about uh, your fiction is to talk a little bit about how you, you, you just seem to very much consciously fret the idea of theatricality vis-a-vis -a, -vis a kind of authenticity. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that comes from, you know, this deep longing for authenticity, um, that the very longing for it precludes it. The very longing for it excludes it. If you're longing for it, it's already gone beyond retrieval. And yet, and so I, I do think it's just true that we're always playing roles and that um, at our most sincere, we are performing sincerity. Now, I think it really matters whether one is attempting to be sincere or one is not. I think that's an important difference. But that difference is not that somehow there is this stable, singular, unified core of self that we can unveil to another person and gain this kind of perfect intimacy, which is, I think, fundamentally what my narrator longs for is a kind of perfect intimacy that that requires authenticity sincerity the sort of revelation of a true self so you know it's this double bind the desperate need for intimacy the absolute skepticism about the possibility of a true self and then the problem of the novels the problem of, of sort of my fictional thinking in the worlds that i create is Given that impasse, how can we, and this is actually um, tied to my thoughts on Carl Phillips's poems, how can we take this double bind and somehow not, not um, kind of solve it, but mobilize its irresolvability in a way that allows us, allows some production that allows a production of affect, that allows a production of community, that allows a production of, um, well, something that I guess I would call love. I, I mean, I could talk about this. I could talk about this endlessly because one of the, it's not a tragic irony because the, the narrator at least seems to escape it, but the narrator also gravitates um, in his darkest moments toward people who will either fundamentally reject him or who will um, see his relations with them in terms of exchange. Yeah. Um, um, and yet at the same time, it's that early moment when Mitko latches onto him like a sea creature in, in an image that's just decidedly platonic, right? Right, absolutely. Um, uh, that uh, he can sleep, Yeah. that he can relax, which... And 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 be at rest in himself, right? right. Let, let's transition a little because you do wear many hats, and 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 I want to talk a little bit about those. Um, you know, uh, you're also you're also a critic. You began your career as a poet, um, and I, you know, I've read I've read some of your book reviews, 
uh, and I mean re reviews of works of fiction, but I mean your true metier really seems to be writing about poetry, or at least you're. It just seems very much in your wheelhouse. Um, I was going to ask you if you were kind of like a closet Thomas Hardy, and and you know the novel stuff was a way of like supporting your, your you know, I your, wish, your dangerous habit. I wish because you know I do think it's a superior art and certainly a much more pure art. But no, I've stopped writing poetry. Okay, I've stopped writing poetry. But I guess what I wanted to talk to you about is what what the differences are or where that Venn diagram overlaps. Uh, you know, as a creative slash intellectual pursuit. So you're here, as I mentioned, giving the talk on the work of Carl Phillips poetry. Talk, if you would, about what it's like to spend several months, as I think you tweeted out, two months with the entirety of his body of work. What, it, what is that process like? Right. And then, and then, and then I guess in a related question would be, what then does Phillips mean to you, or what would you share about what Phillips means to you? So, yeah, so this was uh, definitely a months-long intensive immersion, but also I've been immersed in Carl Phillips's poems for 20 years, more than 20 years. Um, he was one of the first poets I read. Um, we read Pastoral in the first um, creative writing class I ever took, a poetry workshop with um, the writer and critic James Longenbach. The first essay on literature I ever published was on pastoral. Um, and then I've written on Phillips's work elsewhere through the years, at least two other times. Um, but this was a different experience, in part because I mean, the last time I wrote on his book, I think, on his work was, I think, um, his 10th book. So he now has another three books and a second book of essays. So there was more to immerse myself in. And I really did immerse myself. I mean, it was really, um, you know, hours every day of reading the poems. Then of reading, and this was really fun. You know, I mean, it's, it, it was not hard work. It was indulgence. Um, going back and reading Herbert and reading John Donne and reading the Aeneid um, and reading uh, the uh, Phillips's translation of Philoctetes, and um, you know, kind of trying to immerse myself in the world of those poems, and you know, and that is I mean, my the kind of criticism that pleases me, and it's a kind of criticism that you don't get to do in a book review, but the kind of criticism that pleases me is trying to enter into a capacious world. So a writer who, ha who has work that is kind of a sufficient level of achievement to be a space big enough to inhabit for months at a time and to inhabit it and to walk around and to look around and not to have an argument too early on, um, but to try to soak in it and then to try to say something true and, you know, what I really would like is to be able to write a kind of criticism, as I became suspicious of the kind of criticism I was writing as a, as a doctoral student at Harvard. I, I dropped out of the doctoral program. And I was suspicious because it was, seemed to me so much about exerting a kind of power over the text. It seemed to me so much about mastering the text and trying to sort of um, 
be superior to the text by sort of tricking it into revealing something, usually something pernicious about itself that it wasn't aware of, its complicity in various things. And that just came to feel so actually foreign to how I actually use poems, how I use literature in my life, what literature has meant to me. And so I have been, you know, and, and criticism has not been my primary pursuit for some years now, but I have been, um, you know, longing to try to write a kind of criticism that is not about exerting mastery or power over a text, that is not about argument in that sense, but that is instead trying to get at what it means to make, to use, to live with literature, to, for literature, what it means for a body of work, a body of literature to be useful to you in your own life, in sort of the endeavor of humanness. And Carl Phillips has been that for me. I mean, he's one of a handful of poets, um, and they are almost all poets. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I think Zabald is like this as well for me. I was me, about to ask you, who's part of that cohort for you? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, um, among contemporary poets, uh, Frank Bedard, Henri Cole, Louise Glick, you know, and Carl Phillips, um, and Jory Graham, you know, this is a kind of um, body of work, and there are some others, but, um, you know, I mean, I've been living with Carl Phillips' poems for 20 years, and he was my teacher 20 years ago, and um, he his poems along with Bedart's poems and Joy Graham's poems um, were formative of my sense of what art can do. And um, really he is one of the points on my aesthetic compass. And so in some sense, I mean, I do try to say things that are true about the text. I try to sort of be rigorous in dealing with his poems. Um, like I, I want a kind of criticism that is rigorous, that sort of is intellectually um, stringent, but that also gives some sense actually of what these poems have meant to me. And that was something that I felt that none of my criticism about Carl Phillips had done. Um, you know, I, I, I stand by what I've written about his work in the past. It still seems to me, you know, a true thing to say about his poems, but it doesn't seem the truth of my response and, and of what his work has meant to me. And this essay um, which I wrote for this um, event, you know, and I was very moved to be invited, very moved at the thought of of having a public platform as part of a celebration of Phillips's work to try to do this, to try to say what this work has meant to me. And, um, you know, I think, I think maybe it comes closer than I've been able to come before to sort of, being that kind of intellectually, you know, serious, but also affectively engaged criticism. Is that, is that, is that the place you think then now of literary magazines that they create a space where that very kind of thing can be written? Absolutely. And, you know, it is such a luxury to have one, someone say, here are thousands of words you can use. I mean, I've, come to a point where, I mean, maybe I'll change my mind, but, you know, I wrote one review for the New York Times book review, um, which was a 750 word review. And it was a very complex book about which I had complicated feelings 
that were very much feelings of, of admiration and, you know, the kinds of complicated feelings one has about real works of art. And I wrote this 750 word piece, which I think is true. You know, I think everything that it says is something I actually believe and stand by and has nothing to do with what a real engagement with that book would look like. And so I've decided, you know, I'm not going to do those reviews anymore. I'm not going to do 750 word reviews. I think that, um, you know, in, in, in the, uh, in the spirit of truth telling it's, I know I had the exact same experience writing, uh, for the New York times book review about Antoine Wilson's, uh, second book where I think I had 1200 words mm. and, uh, it's very difficult with such a limitation to not think about market forces. Now, what Absolutely. do I, now what do I mean by that? Cause I don't want, I don't want people's hair catching on fire and being like, you know, you changed what you thought. No, I'm in wholehearted agreement with you, but here was a writer's second book. I went ahead. I hadn't read it for his first book. I went ahead and read his first book, which I thought had a brilliant conceit and had brilliant moments. And then I read his second book twice. And I felt this extraordinary pressure between trying to indicate to a reader what was true about it, beautiful about it, maybe for what reader this book was for, but then also um, not so much tempering the aspects of it that I felt like needed to be not slammed, but roughed up a bit or called attention to but um, to speak between the lines, as it were, about some of those things, because because uh, it's extraordinarily important. I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's a full page, right? And so, yeah, it's 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 hard. Um, I was wondering if there were other critics today that you dash right to. Yeah. I love, for instance, Michael Hoffman. I think he's remarkable, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, like I think for me. And and I'm not. I should say that I am not deeply read in prose criticism. Um, I am deeply read in criticism of poetry. But to me, the gold standard of non-specialist writing about literature for, for, for in the English language for prose is James Wood. Yeah, and he, you know, he reviewed the same book um, that I reviewed for the New York Times Book Review. He reviewed the same book for the New Yorker where he had 3000 words and you know, my 750 words, because there were things, I, I mean, I felt a genuine ambivalence about the book, which was not, you know, ambivalence in the true sense, not wishy-washy, but that I had very strong feelings that were intentioned, which again, to me is a sign of a book that merits attention. What was the book? So it's David Saloy's all that man is, yes. um, which I think is brilliant. And also, and you know, and made me feel in complicated ways as I want books to do. And, you know, in that 750 words, I could not engage with those complications. So I did, I did a, what sounds like a similar thing to what you did, which was I emphasized because I thought, well, I'm not going to say things that um, are going to kind of have an overstated impact on this book because it's the New York Times book review. And, you know, I had 750 words and, you know, the proportion of words that were not pure admiration was sort of too high and so the book was damaged mm -hmm. that felt irresponsible to me it felt irresponsible to sort of flag my ambivalences without the space to really explore them mm -hmm. and then i read james wood's review 
which is a wonderful review and where he had 3000 words in the New Yorker, which is still not enough space, but is a lot more space. Mm -hmm. It's a space you can work in. And I mean, that review I think is kind of a masterpiece. And I read it and I thought, yeah, that's how you do it. And it is clear in that review, you know, this kind of genuine ambivalence, like this is a book that, that is brilliant in many ways and merits our attention and about which I feel complicatedly. I, I just think I just think his reviews to me are uh, they're a privilege in the sense that they almost have the intimacy of a letter written to the writer. Absolutely. Well, and also you know, and part of that is, I think he does you know um, immerse himself. I mean, I don't think you can write meaningfully about literature without a without immersion. I think he immersed himself, and then he is also immersed in a tradition. And I do feel a lot. You know, because so much of criticism now that we don't have a literary culture that can support professional critics, so much of criticism is, you know, writers reviewing other writers and novelists reviewing other novelists. And I think, you know, on one hand, that can be extraordinary. I mean, if you have a, a great novelist who's a great critic, I mean, there's nothing better. Kurtzia's criticism is astonishing. Um, or Han Pamuk's criticism is just fantastic. But... Sometimes I feel like, well, the context that this review is placing me in for this book or placing this book in for me, and that's the important thing that a review does. Like, I, the least interesting thing about a review is whether someone likes something or not. I mean, that, I just, I, like, I've become so uninterested in whether I like something. But the, the context they're putting this book in is the context of books that have been published in the last two years. And then you read James Wood. And you're like, oh, so this is how this writer relates to Chekhov. Oh, this is how this writer is working in the tradition of Zola. And that just, you know, that is then a real service. He's sort of giving us a map to a writer. And that, that to me is, is just an ideal. What, what then for you right now is, I mean, you talk about there not being a literary culture that can support critics, but what is the place of literature in the culture? Well, that's tricky. And, and I should, you know, I should specify, I mean, we, I should, I should nuance what I said, because it is true, you know, we have a culture that supports writers in academic settings. And that is a way of supporting criticism in the culture. But we no longer have a culture of, say, newspapers and magazines, Right. Where people can make a living. I mean, how, you know, the number of professional book critics in this country is really small. People who make their living doing that. In the place of literature and the culture, it's really, you know, I, I don't know that I have an answer to that. Um, I mean, in so many ways, I feel quite alienated from, well, in so many ways, I feel quite perplexed as to what culture means now. Um, that it seems like what culture means is what's trending on Twitter that's so alien to my sense of culture um, and also to my experience of culture that I don't know what culture is. And I don't know, I know what I think the place of literature should be. I know what I think the place of inexperience like reading or writing, an immersive, solitary experience of one's own sensibility I know what I think the role of that should be in the culture. And I know that I think it feels more urgently necessary now than it ever has in my life. 
But I don't know that I have an answer. Um, you know, because it... Um, I think people should read more. I think there should be more of an acknowledgement that the very things we are most intensely concerned about now, which are things like the possibility of genuine solidarity across lines of difference, that that is precisely what literature is for. That literature is the best technology we have for communicating the experience of another person's life from the inside. That it seems to me genuinely miraculous that I can read Sappho or Mishima or Horace or Adichie and discover in those books a world that is so radically different from mine and a human existence and struggle that is so radically proximate to mine that that is um that is sort of the magic of literature that sort of by focusing on the particular we can arrive at the universal that's exactly what we need. We don't find that on Twitter. And every time there is a sort of Twitter wave of outrage about a book or about a cultural product that is really displaced outrage about Trump, and we feel so hopeless in the face of Trump that we attack what we can have power over. And so we attack a book, we attack a YA author, we attack something like that. And I feel like, you know, the goals are so admirable and they would be so much better served if instead of attacking this book on Twitter, you went out and read a book. So that's what I think the, the place of literature should be in our culture. I really don't know what it is. On that note, I think we should end. I wanted to just say to you, uh, what a pleasure it's been to talk to you, uh, I'm a gigantic fan of your work, and uh, I think everyone could learn from uh, the example you've set of how to live a literary life. And uh, it's it's a really great privilege for us to have you here on, at the Swanee Review Podcast and at the University of the South. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Adam. The privilege is all mine. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Sewanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesewaneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sewanee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynana, and sound engineer, Alex Martin, with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time. This is the Swanee Review, new since 1892.